Today we start a new series called the called Power of Faith. A great series talking about how faith can really have power to bring good things in our life. And today's speaker is someone who's near and dear to my heart. Let's and also my husband. Uh, let's let's welcome John first. Why? Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. Good to be here. Sunday after Easter. You know, um, whoa, that's pretty good, right? I'm a skilled uh, music stand person. Hey, it's good to be with you, and it's always fun to share. You know, more often than not that I'm up here wrangling music, but today I get the great opportunity to speak to you, and I always appreciate the um, chance to do that. Um, you know, the river operates on a team leadership basis, and so we each have kind of different areas that we're responsible for, um, and uh, that's how it works, but I get the great opportunity today to speak, and I'm happy to do it. You know, church, I've I just been realizing, looking more than I ever have before at the church calendar, this liturgical calendar that's evolved over centuries, and you know, I didn't, wasn't like fully tuned into the fact that Easter is not a one-off holiday. It's not a one-day holiday in the church calendar. It actually runs for seven weeks. Easter Tide, it's called. And it continues to run all the way up into Pentecost, which this year is May 20th. So I kind of found it interesting that, you know, we're still in the Paschal Easter season. So it's still appropriate for me to say, He is risen. And you say, He is risen indeed. indeed. Or I'll say, He is still risen. Still risen indeed, exactly. So we are, in fact, in this new sermon series where we're leading up to, driving up to the, uh, the day of Pentecost, that, that interesting moment where we remember how God poured out his Holy Spirit in this amazing and kind of delightfully strange way that we'll be looking at in the future. But now we're kicking off the sermon series, Power of Faith, and we're looking at how faith can make it feel like the wind is at our back as we travel, sail through life, how we can access more of God's good stuff for our lives. That's what we're looking at. So I thought we would start with a traditional reading that happens oftentimes in churches on the Sunday after Easter, because it kind of picks up after the Easter story. I think it has some interesting things to say about the nature of faith. And so without further ado, let's jump in on John chapter 20, and it picks up right after the resurrection, continues the story, and here's what it says. One of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, was not with the others when Jesus appeared to them. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them, place my hand into the wound in his side. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Peace be with you, he said. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be unbelieving, believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas exclaimed. Jesus said, so you believe because you've seen with your own eyes, even better blessings are in store for those who believe without seeing. The disciples saw Jesus do many other miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. Amen. Feels like I should do an amen at the end of this beautiful reading. Can you, this poor, first off, let's just acknowledge poor Thomas. 
that, that's a bummer of a moment to miss out on. I don't know if they had them out, you know, collecting food for dinner or what. Can you imagine coming back? Thomas, you'll never guess who was just here. I mean, literally, you will not guess. I mean, talk about FOMO. You know, he is missing out in a mad, major way here. So it's a fun thing to imagine. But there are a couple observations about the nature of faith, I think, of, uh, that we can draw from this passage that I think will start us off on our new series. I think the first and the most obvious one is that Thomas hears the disciples' stories. Here's what they have to say. But he really needs to have his own experience for it to settle into his heart. That's, that's classic. That's like us in so many ways, right? Faith doesn't really develop from secondhand knowledge. It, it just doesn't. Or book knowledge or church knowledge. Ultimately, it's really by our own experiential knowledge that we grow in faith. And we're going to come back to this because I think that's pretty big. The second thing I see in this passage is that I don't think faith here is portrayed as binary. I really don't think that's the nature of faith. It's not either I have it or I don't. That just doesn't quite capture. I think things like hope and love and faith, they're not really binary either or sort of things. They're more fluid than that. So I think when Jesus says, don't be unbelieving, believe, I think in, set, in essence what he's saying is try to move your needle a little bit towards the believing side. Move it. Try to, you have a little bit of faith, see if you can muster up a bit more now that you're actually with me. I think that speaks about the nature of faith. And it says, it's interesting to remember that Jesus says it doesn't really even take that much faith for great things to happen in our lives. That's interesting. Another thing I see in there is this kind of perplexing statement that the payoff of faith could be even greater for us than it was for these disciples. That section where Jesus says, even better blessings await those who believe without seeing, like the way that Thomas did. That's kind of hard to believe, isn't it? But I have a feeling, I wonder if that's hinting towards this Pentecost holiday that's coming, where we're going to talk about the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting section in any case. But I, I like this last section. Can we put that last bit up again, Jamie? Where it says, where John kind of explains his motivation for writing his account of Jesus. I like this. So he says, These are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life. He tells all about it. He just puts his motivation straight out there and says, the point of my writing is faith. It's to inspire your faith. And the point of faith is to inspire life. I like that. That's interesting to say that the author here is saying, listen, we're not just writing these things down so that you can believe properly, you know, that you can behave in the right way or that you can get your facts straight. That's not what he's saying. He says faith is ultimately about life, L-I-F-E. It's about living more life. I think that's very concrete and interesting. In fact, let's spend some time looking at that. Today, I just want to throw out there four things, four wonderful things that the power of faith can do in our lives. Uh, this is what our series will be about for the next few weeks, and I just want to mention four things right out of the gate. Four great things power of faith can do. First off is it can create extraordinary breakthrough moments in our lives. It can do that. There are 
moments where God breaks through. And, and uh, you know, last week, if you were here for Easter, you saw that we had dozens of stories hanging up on these black curtains over there that were collected during the season of Lent from people in our church who felt like God did something wonderful for them. And so we thought, rather than, ha- again, rather than a one-off, one Sunday, miss it, you miss it, we decided we'll collect these stories and we'll put them here in this little book. And so I got dozens of stories here, these wonderful little snapshots of people's experiences of God's goodness in their lives. It's really encouraging. And so we've put this together. We'll put it back on the thing. If you'd like to thumb through it or or see how yours comes out, if you put one in there. Uh, It's very fun uh, to look at these extraordinary moments that people describe in the last couple months of their lives. So what we talked about during the season of Lent was to come up with a big ask and then to not give up, to really pursue that, to ask and to keep asking to seek and keep seeking, to uh, knock and keep knocking. That was what we had talked about during the season of Lent. And we talked about this persistence because, you know what, uh, sometimes it takes that type of diligent persistence to see a miraculous breakthrough. It just does. It takes that sort of ongoing effort. But there's another reason we've talked so much about this persistence because what we've learned, of course, is that in the asking and the seeking and in the knocking in in of itself, something good happens in our souls. And so the big ask was a big part of what we did over Lent. And it's true that we can see extraordinary breakthrough moments in our lives as a result of faith. But I like the contrary of this too. Number two is this. It can help us delight in the ordinary moments of our lives. That's nice. So it's not just I'm looking for the ultimate breakthrough miracle, although you can and should and we try. But it also helps us to delight in the ordinary moments of our lives, to add some shine to regular old daily life, the grind. That's a beautiful thing and a powerful thing. Faith says that we can learn to love the life we're living. Let's learn to love the life we're living. Isn't that a nice sentence? I found that this week. You want to try it with me? Let's learn to love the life we're living. Just rolls off the tongue in alliteration Let's learn to love the life we're living. That's a powerful gift. If faith can unlock that, that's, that's a wonderful thing. I was thinking about this week and how there's a little bit of a downside. It occurred to me, and maybe, maybe, maybe there's a couple, but there's one downside that occurs to me about living in New York City. And it's this, talk about FOMO. At any moment, in any day, somewhere in this crazy place, there's something extraordinary happening. I can tell you somewhere else right now, there's something that's even more exhilarating than this happening in the, in the city. And so it does give you that sense of like, oh man, what? You're, you can get that FOMO, can really, really can take over. But the gift of faith is that we can learn to love the life we're living now. That's powerful. And we're going to talk about that in weeks to come. And I, I, again, I think it's a little preview towards Pentecost. The idea of Pentecost, which is coming up on May 20th, this this particular holiday, is that now God is with us. And rather than God being out there somewhere, he's actually in there. So faith and spirituality and God, oftentimes we think out there somewhere. And so we're trying to make a connection. But the message, the beauty, the power of Pentecost, kind of the most interesting of all the holy days, is that what it says is now God can be in here, in my actual being. The Holy Spirit brings the presence of Jesus right into my heart and life. That allows me to begin to 
love the life I'm living, whether it's extraordinary or ordinary. So we're going to talk more about that. Charles has some great things on tap for next week uh, to look at that. But here's another thing that the power of faith can do. It can expand our capacity to love and be loved. That's a beautiful thing. Faith can expand our capacity to love and be loved. And it can help us come to peace with and actually transcend our flaws. So I've been following some of you on Facebook, and there are some flaws that I want to bring to your attention. No, <laughs> kidding about that. Well, we all have flaws, and I'm going to suggest that faith can, can help us come to peace with them and really even transcend them. So what I'm pitching today is that faith has the power to create extraordinary breakthrough moments. It has the power to help us enjoy ordinary moments. It has the capacity, uh, the power to help us expand our capacity to love and be loved and to help us come to peace with and, and possibly even transcend our flaws. Now, those sound like good things? Would you like more of those things? My wife says yes. I think she's speaking about me. But <laughs> we would all like to see those four things increase in our lives. I know I would. So let's talk a little bit about love. Let's talk about love. Now, you don't need faith to know that love is important, right? Maybe you, are you familiar with the Harvard Grant study that was done? It's one of the longest running longitudinal studies, analysis of human development and happiness that has ever been staged. And uh, followed 268 undergraduate men for more than seven decades of their lives. And it measured this huge range of psychological, anthropological, physical traits. Studied them over seven decades. And you know what the key takeaway after all this? This is a great quote here. Here it is. 75 years and $20 million expended on the Harvard Grant study points to a straightforward five-word conclusion. Happiness is love. Full stop. Drop the mic. 20 million bucks in 75 years, we've discovered the secret of happiness. It's like, well, duh, you know, that's your Ivy League at work right there. I'm teasing, of course. We, we don't need studies and you don't, or faith, really, to know that love is important. And the truth is, we don't need faith in order to grow in our capacity to love and be loved, right? A lot, I'm not suggesting that Christians have the corner on love. That's not realistic at all. In fact, there are plenty of atheists who are super loving. And there are, contrarily, a lot of devoutly religious people who are not very loving. But here's, here's my pitch. I think where there is love, there is God. Because God is love. And I think God is... This is my... my my suggestion. God is showing love to people everywhere, every moment, every day, helping people to grow in love, whether they know him or acknowledge God or not. I think that's just the nature of love. That's what love does. It's like water. It keeps flowing and moving and filling every space that it will allow it. But, but the more we recognize and interact with God as the source of love, well, that's the more fun it gets. So the power of faith is that it helps us learn how we can connect directly to the source. That's what we want to look at specifically today. Make sense? Tracking with me? All right. So in faith, what we learn is that the irreducible essence of who God is, is love. It's that famous sentence from Jesus' best friend who wrote it. God 
is love. That's who God is. Faith teaches that the grounding of every atom is love. It's, you can see it in creation. You can see it in the course of human history throughout all time. I love the way that this Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, said it. This is a nice quote from Richard Rohr says, God's first idea was to pour out divine, infinite love into finite, visible forms. The Big Bang is our scientific name for that first idea. Christ is our theological name. And it's all about love exploding itself out in all directions. That's like an amen, right? It's pretty good. That's pretty cool. God who is always revealing himself and his love in various ways. It's who God is. But I do want to say, I don't mean, when I talk about God's love, I don't just mean this vague, general, cosmological sense of love. I mean in specific, concrete, demonstrable ways, God is pouring out his love to people. I really believe that. Now, as Christians, we believe that God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. We believe that Jesus came to demonstrate and to embody and to incarnate the divine love that God has for every single human being on earth, whether we acknowledge it or not, whether people are aware of it, doesn't matter. Jesus represents and is the fullness of God. So when we examine the life and times of Jesus, we can see who God really is and what his feelings toward us are, right? So let's rewind a little bit to this story from last weekend that we... Uh, that appeared in our telling of the, of the Easter story, and it's the washing of the disciples' feet, very near the end of Jesus' life. Let's take a, a, a re-look at this. We, we, it appeared last week in the telling of the story, and we'll read it now again. So this comes from John 13, and here's what it says. Before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to the Father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper, and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist, and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with a towel he had around him. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one, for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It's beautiful, right? I think we do another amen. Amen! That's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. The heart and the attitude. This example to follow. And I think it's more than just an example. It's this flow. It's a pattern that actually works. Where we see that we're to receive the love of God and then to extend it outwards. And then by extending love to other people, we receive. It's this flow. That's the deal. That does seem to be the pattern of how it all works. And what I like about this story is that Jesus' love here, it's specific, it's concrete, it's humble, 
I mean, it's tactile. It's very down to earth. This, I suggest, is the nature of God's love. In the 12th century, uh, St. Bonaventure put it like this, a nice quote. He says, we are each loved by God in a particular and incomparable way. That's nice. God's love for each single soul, it's unique and it's made to order. I think that's quite powerful to consider. I think you see that here in this story, right? Because there's, con- there's a cultural context in which foot washing meant something quite powerful, more so than it would for us, specific to their world. But beyond that even, I think what's interesting is to consider that each individual, each of these 12 followers, these disciples, has this moment with Jesus. Each one of them, 12 personal interactions. That's 24 feet picked up, washed, lovingly tended, and put back down. I mean, that that must have taken a little bit of time. Can you imagine for a second? Just think about that. stretch of time. We read it in a heartbeat, but it took some time and some individual interactions. Moves to the next, grabs the foot, grabs the next foot. That's, that's interesting, and I think it says a lot. So last week, of course, we heard that this story, the foot washing, really it's, it precedes the big story, which is the story of Jesus' betrayal, his trial, his crucifixion, Right? I believe that the ultimate display of the love of God is seen here on the cross and the empty tomb of Easter. That's the ultimate display of God's love. And it's interesting when you think about this. Throughout the centuries, followers of Jesus have wrestled how to think, how to think about the amazing, universe-changing power and the work of Jesus on the cross. There have been a lot of different ways people have tried to grasp and grapple with what does that all mean? The, the theological term for that, trying to wrap our heads around the, the power of the cross, is called the atonement theory. That's the theological terminology. And there are actually a lot of different theories about how it works, why it works, what's, what makes it so crucially central, what did God do in that, that instance. There are different opinions about it, actually, different theories. One of the theories can be summed up with this idea, Jesus had to die because we were so bad. He had to. That's one of the theories out there. Another theory says it's more like this. God was mad. He was mad at our sin, and so he sent Jesus. That's actually quite a common, uh, quite a common way of thinking about it. I, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the most famous sermon in American history, Charles has mentioned this a time or two, the most famous sermon in human, uh, not human, in American history is sinners in the hands of an angry God. Don't, don't you wish the most famous sermon was Martin Luther King, I Have a Dream? But it's not. The most famous sermon is sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's, it landed in the 18th century and it kind of took root. I remember as a 10th grader that my English class made us read the, the sermon and then draw a picture representing what we had read. So I drew a picture of God's hand holding on to a thread that was fraying with some terrified sinner on the end, and underneath that were the flames of hell. 
Now, I didn't believe in God at the time, right? I grew up as an atheist and agnostic sort of person. I didn't believe in God at all, but I'll tell you what, I never forgot that. <laughs> I never forgot it. And the thing about that one, that mentality, is that once it grips you, it hangs on tight, that, that whole idea. So this view of God, that, that particular atonement theory was quite popular in the 18th century when that sermon was first preached. But you know what? It's still around. It's still around, that mentality. There's a modern hymn uh, happening right now. I'll give you an example of this. There's a modern hymn called In Christ Alone. We sang it last week for our Easter service. It se- I know it seems like an old song, but it was written in 2001. It's not that old at all. It's a beautiful song about the life and the work of Jesus. And there's a verse as part of that that talks about the crucifixion. And over time, since 2001, there have become two different versions of this song, this particular lyric that have been sung in churches. So it talks about the cross. And one of them, it says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He da 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 that one. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the one version is, the wrath of God was satisfied. That's the original version. But over time, some churches and others said, you know, how about this version? And they've rewritten it. And some people have, in the way we've sung it, the love of God was magnified. Till on the cross, as Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Now, those are just little six-word phrases there. Six words. And I, I have to say that asking six words to capture the profound mystery of the cross, that's a burden too much for any song to carry. But think with me for a moment about the implications here. These are two very different thoughts about God. In one, we have an angry God who requires payment to be satisfied. That's the way it is. I'm going to suggest that that framework for understanding the cross, it tends to, it tends to perpetuate this, uh, a sense of fear, sense of unworthiness, of guilt, and shame. It oftentimes does that. Whereas this other version, I think, says that all of the fear, the guilt, the shame, that has all been dealt with on the cross. Because of his great, great love, Jesus took that, absorbed it, and transformed it. Those are two pretty different ideas. And they're going to produce different results in us as we pursue faith. So our bias is clear. We sang it last week kind of like that second one. And it's not just a matter of liking it. It's feel like that better represents the nature of who we understand God to be. So we believe that the cross, by the way, isn't this a beautiful new cross that uh, our friend David has just created for us, handcrafted? Thank you. Beautiful. It's wonderful to have here. We just got it last week. We believe the cross of Jesus illuminates the unimaginable love of God for each and every one of us. So I really do believe that the power of faith can help us to come to peace with and even transcend our flaws. And I'm going to confess today that I don't have three quick solutions for you. I don't have, do this and you're over your flaws. And I don't even have a great practical suggestion about it, to be honest. But what I'm trying to suggest is that the starting point the framework that is most helpful, the mindset to begin with, is that God loves us more than we can possibly imagine, and he's not angry. 
that's what's going to help us move past. And we're going to talk more in detail in, in the coming weeks about how, how that all works. But my suggestion is that when we start from a negative place, this idea that I'm so unworthy, I'm undeserving, I'm sinful, that it's very difficult to get to a healthy, more positive frame of reference to tackle our flaws. So I want to state this again. One of the deepest convictions in Christian faith is that Jesus perfectly reveals the true nature of who God is. And so it's worth asking ourselves, what does Jesus reveal? What does he show us about his attitude toward our brokenness? That's a good question. What do we see? How did Jesus respond to sinners at the time? How did he interact with flawed people? It could not be more clear in reading each one of the Gospels that Jesus was so consistent and said, in essence, I am here. I am not freaked out by your sin and your brokenness. I love you, and I'm here to help. It could not be clear that that was his attitude. That is the primary disposition of God towards people, all of us. Or let's, let's put it like this. Um, at the Father's Heart Food Pantry, where we uh, volunteer once a month, and they, they run it every week. You know, at that Father's Heart Food Pantry, every single session that they do, they remind themselves as a team, they remind their volunteers, and they remind the hundreds of guests who come through their doors. They put it like this. They sum it all up, and they say, Papa God is not mad at you. And that's the starting point for everything we're doing. And they say it over and over and over again because they know that that idea is out there. And when that idea gets you, it can kind of grip you. And so week after week after week, they, they stand up and they make this declaration. God is not angry. You're, everyone is welcome. It's a beautiful thing. You can feel it when you're there. So let me just put this clear as I can. Jesus didn't die because we're so bad, but because God is so good. God doesn't love us because we're good, but because God is good. Tracking with me? I need a little, yeah! Amen! Amen. That's what I'm looking for. I need one of those. This is big. and It's this mentality that gives us hope to make peace with and then possibly even transcend our flaws. Let me, let me quote Richard Rohr one more time. God's plan is so perfect that even sin and tragedy and painful deaths are used to bring us into divine union. I like that. That's a hopeful way of seeing life, and it seems true when you consider who Jesus is. The cross says that everyone and everything belongs. Everything belongs. I belong. You belong. That's a beautiful thing. Every part of me belongs. Even the broken part, the flawed part, everything. Every one of my 37 trillion cells here in my human body, did you know that's how many there are? I counted last week. There are 37 trillion cells in the human body. Every single one, every atom belongs. That's the power of the cross. So in the weeks and the months to come, we're going to dive into this even more.
Okay, so what's this all add up to? It seems to me that Thomas's story and, and the foot washing story and really the whole life of Jesus, when you look at it, indicate very clearly that he, Jesus, is willing to interact in a personal and individualized way with anyone who is open to it. Happened with Thomas, happened with the disciples, happened with anyone. He's willing to interact in that way. And when we begin to understand and trust that we, we can have actual experiences of this God who loves us, who has nothing but goodness in his heart toward us, that's when we learn that spirituality is not meant to be some vague, abstract, theoretical thing out there, but it's actually concrete and specific and individualized to each of us, like life itself. We really can connect directly to the source of love. And when we do that, Jesus can and will expand our capacity to love and to be loved. So the question is, would you be open to such a thing? Would you be open to an encounter with Jesus where he says to you in a way that you can understand, somehow finds a way to communicate to you, I'm here. I, I see you. I know you. I love you. Any interest? That's, that's kind of a crucial question because everything we do here at the river, the goal, the reason we do all of this is to put tools and encouragement and opportunities in your hands, in our hands, to experience God for ourselves. That's kind of our gig. We're not here to tell you what to believe or what to do. We're saying we want to create atmospheres and opportunities and give you tools and encouragement to have your own connection with God because that's where the good stuff comes from. Everything we do here, Sunday services, the life groups, classes, retreats, river kids, all of it is meant to help us learn how to make our connection to God. Now, I want to say we want to do this in a safe way, in a sane way, because it's true that experience needs to be interpreted right? If everyone's out there just kind of, you know, we get it. We need to do this in a safe and sane way. And of course we need to be, learn how to interpret that experience. We all, we all need help in learning how to understand what God might be doing or saying to us through these admittedly subjective experiences, right? So that's where scripture, that's where community, that's where tradition come in to really help us. They, they help us discern which part of our experiences are worth looking at and which parts are maybe uh, a bit of a detour or a dead end. Right? So that's why we're committed to learning from the Bible. That's why we're committed to building relationships with one another. That's why we're committed to gaining wisdom from those who have gone before us in faith as we pursue this connection with God. So here's the practical suggestion, my one and only. How about opening yourself up to an actual experience of God's love for you personally? See what it does for you. Just see. Maybe you're an old hand at this. Maybe you're brand new. It doesn't really matter. What if we all just said, let's try to open ourselves up and see what an experience of God's love would do for us. I think we would all benefit each one of us, in one way or another, would benefit from that type of experience. It will only help us grow in our own love 
for God, for ourselves, for others. Now, can, let me just, a couple little things about this experiential way of thinking. I'm not suggesting that this is necessarily an earth-shattering encounter. Okay, Thomas had a pretty dramatic moment. I'm suggesting maybe we have smaller, possibly surprisingly quiet, mundane moments where we feel connection with God. Okay, it could be little things. I'll give you an example. I remember once um, I was at a concert. I was at a, some, I don't even remember who it was. There was a, it was a concert, and I was waiting for the band to come up, and I was listening to the sound check where they're getting all the instruments and the PA equipment worked out, and I remember hearing the kick drum. They were testing it through the PA system. And, you know, I'm a rock and roll guy and a musician, and I'm listening to this kick drum, and I'm going, oh, I love a kick drum. Right, John? I mean, it's like, oh, amen, amen to that. So I'm just sitting there enjoying this moment, thinking, oh, man, I love the sound of a good kick drum. It just kills me. And I swear to you, I felt like I heard God say, I do too. <laughs> I, for a second, I went, am I making that up? It was this beautiful little moment where I felt like, if that were true, he was entering into my world. He was sharing my unique perspective. I just thought, yeah. I love that you know who I am and love me. Now, folks, I didn't go start a church based on the kick drum, okay? I didn't redirect my life. I'm not saying that. But it was this moment of connection that was so individualized. I thought, oh, I love you, and I love that you love me, and let's rock, you know, whatever. It was just this, this wonderful little moment, a small moment. But it did something for my soul. And can I also mention, as we wrap this up, that sometimes, you've got to remember that sometimes the best way that we can experience God's love for ourselves is by extending our love to others. We can never forget that. That's the point of the foot washing, right? We have to pay it forward. That's the flow. Sometimes we're blocked. I'm not feeling anything. Well, expand your love outward, and all of a sudden, there's this flow. Oh, I'm feeling more of God's love. And then I give that out. And it's, it, it oftentimes happens in that way. That's the experience. Uh, one, one last story that where I, I feel like I caught that one time. Flashing back, I was a 23-year-old brand-new father. We were young. Too young to be trusted with babies, but what are you going to do? <laughs> I remember coming home from the hospital with this little creature who had caused a lot of trouble in the previous couple days. But when we finally got him home, I remember putting this little baby boy into the crib as a 23-year-old young father, first time, looking down. And you know what happens when you're looking at that baby. You all of a sudden, you you just, you you just got to, you fall in love. You fall crazy in love. And I remember looking at that little boy, and going, oh, man, I love, 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 love. I felt like God said something along the lines of, that's how I feel about you every day. That was pretty good. It's pretty good. It was a wonderful, beautiful moment. So let's just end with this bold and daring prayer that I would suggest for you. Simple. God... Show me how you truly feel about me. That's a bold prayer. It's a daring prayer. could change you, but it's a good one. And it's one that we need to pray not just once, but ongoing. God, show me how you truly feel about me.
Let's pray. Lord, I just want to say thank you that your whole attitude and disposition toward us is nothing but love. And that every single one of us belongs. And every single part of us belongs. And so here we are gathered for a few moments and we just want to invite you. Help us open our hearts to more of what you have for us in this moment so that we could experience more of your love and be changed. To grow in our capacity to love others, to love ourselves, to love you back. Here we are, God. Show us how you truly feel about us. Amen.